Welcome to Traveling Culturati, where we explore cultures and share travel news, travel tips, destinations, and travel chats. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Well, hello there, fellow Culturati. Javon Harley here, your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. And thank you for tuning in for another week of travel news, travel tips, and travel chats. This year marks the 100th anniversary of the events that destroyed the area known as Black Wall Street. The event is currently known as the Tulsa Race Massacre. Michelle Brown Burdicks, program coordinator of the Greenwood Cultural Center, will be on with me later for the history of Greenwood, the area known as Black Wall Street, the massacre and destruction, and how the city is commemorating the 100th anniversary today. So stay tuned for that. We'll also have Javon's Travel Minute and the Culture Report on planning a cultural trip. But right now, let's get into a little travel news. As the Colonial Pipeline remains shut down following last week's malware cyber attack, fuel shortages across the East Coast are beginning to impact U.S. airline operations. The first carrier to have altered schedules is American Airlines. Meanwhile, others say that if the fuel supply network is not brought back online by the weekend, adjustments may need to be made. Two American Airlines long-haul routes out of Charlotte will need to make extra stops throughout the week. The Colonial Pipeline carries almost half of the gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel for the East Coast through a 5,500-mile system from Texas to New Jersey. And last week, a ransomware attack caused the company to shut down its entire network. The cyber attack appears to have been engineered by an Eastern European-based group calling itself Dark Side, a reference that could be drawn either from Star Wars or a play on the name of one of the supervillains of DC Comics. Colonial says that most of the halted service should be restored by the end of last week. In the meantime, however, some airlines are forced to find ways to deal with issues arising from the shortage supply. What about cruising? We've been waiting for a very long time for cruising to resume in the United States, and a lot has happened with lawsuits looming as well. But the CDC has announced technical guidelines for the test cruise phase of the conditional sailing order. That conditional sailing order is for July, but only if testing gets a passing grade. The CDC action is one of the final steps toward resuming cruising in the U.S. waters. The test cruises will operate for a duration of between two to seven days and must have at least 10% occupancy rate based on the ship's capacity. Volunteer guests must be adults and are either fully vaccinated or do not have any underlying medical conditions that could make them high risk for COVID-19. The cruise line must make it clear to volunteers that they are taking part in an untested safety exercise and sailing during a pandemic is an inherently risky activity. All guests must be checked for COVID symptoms before and after the cruise, and at least three quarters must be tested before disembarking. They must wear face masks and social distancing measures will be in place and guests will be able to go ashore but only guided excursions. Ships must conduct at least one test cruise before approved to sail revenue voyages again, but there is an exemption. Cruise lines can bypass the test cruise phase if they can prove 98% of crew and 95% of all passengers are vaccinated. Remember I talked about that vaccine passport? There you go. <laughs> or the vaccine card. Let's call it that. And Broadway will be back in action in September. Broadway's bright lights will twinkle again. Theaters will reopen in September at full capacity and tickets for shows will go on sale this week. This is according to Governor Andrew Cuomo. 
The famed theater district has been closed for more than a year, causing a severe financial impact, and some productions have confirmed they won't be returning. Phantom of the Opera announced a reopening date of October 22nd. The New York Times reports about 30 shows will start or resume performances by the end of this year, including Hamilton, The Lion King, and Wicked. So this may be a better time than any to get in to see those shows that were otherwise always sold out. And on Friday, May 14th, the National Museum of African American History and Culture reopened its doors. As we begin that gradual phased reopening for the museum, they are putting safety first with enhanced measures in place to ensure the safety and well-being of visitors, volunteers, and staff. You still need the free timed entry passes. You can go on their website and click schedule to apply for a free timed entry pass. The museum will open Wednesday through Sunday from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. and will be closed to the public on Mondays and Tuesdays each week during this initial reopening phase. And the Black Music and Entertainment Walk of Fame will be underway in June of this year. The Black American Music Association and Georgia Entertainment Caucus chose June for the inauguration in honor and celebration of Black Music Month to honor artists who have impacted Black culture and the community. The initial 12 inductees are James Brown, Otis Redding, Quincy Jones, and Stevie Wonder. They're classified as foundational inductees. Michael Jackson as a legacy artist. Sean Combs as a mainstream mogul. Shirley Caesar for female gospel artist. Kirk Franklin as gospel male artist. Missy Elliott, female hip hop artist. Outcast for male hip hop. Beyonce for mainstream female and Usher for mainstream male. The Walk of Fame will be permanently installed in downtown Atlanta in front of the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. The emblems denoting the inductees were designed by D.L. Warfield and created in collaboration with sculptor and historian Ed Dwight. Airbnb CEO says that the company will need millions more hosts to meet surging demand. According to CEO Brian Chesky, we'll start to see more ads from Airbnb to add millions of new hosts to accommodate guests as travel picks up again following the coronavirus pandemic. He also stated, I think we'll probably have a high class problem where there will probably be more guests coming to Airbnb than we'll have hosts because we think there's going to be a travel rebound coming that's unlike anything we've ever seen. Airbnb, which relies on people to open their homes to guests, the company will need to ramp up its number of hosts instead of building out more real estate or adding flights to meet demand. Chesky said Airbnb isn't likely to offer a lot of incentives either to bring new hosts on board since there's already such a huge demand of service. It's a problem similar to that faced by other companies in the gig economy, such as Uber, which recently announced a $250 million stimulus in an effort to bring more drivers to its platform. Now, according to Uber, as vaccination rates increase in the United States, we are observing that consumer demand for mobility is recovering faster than driver availability, and consumer demand for delivery continues to exceed courier availability. What I wanna know is why have rideshare rates tripled? I mean, I looked at an Uber ride not long ago that would normally have cost me $8 that came up to $18. And others I checked were giving me timed arrivals at different intervals. But I wound up taking a taxi for the same $8 I would have normally paid for Uber. However, it took a while for that taxi to arrive. There aren't that many taxis out there. So I say to you taxi drivers, hit the road because rideshare rates have gone through the roof and people still need to get places. So let's see how that all plays out.
Now, American Airlines is announcing new amenities kits. They announced recently that their new amenity kits will be for premium class travelers on long haul international and transcontinental flights now that they're operating them again. The kits, which debuted earlier this week on flights between United States and London, will be added to more routes throughout the summer. They featured different designs for each cabin. American partnered with Detroit-based luxury design brand Shinola for the kits and are designed so that passengers will want to reuse them in another form. You know, I do keep my vanity kits when I feel I can reuse them. I remember one year United did them in the form of shoe bags and I still use those shoe bags today. The carrier also partnered with Brooklyn-based fragrance company DS and Durga for kits to include really modern fragrances like Rose Atlantic and Bombay Radio. American typically refreshes its amenity kits every few years and the carrier is now preparing for the return to long haul travel, including business travel. They go alongside other initiatives, including refreshing entertainment content and allowing passengers to access Facebook Messenger on Wi-Fi for free. And Change.org has petitioned to cancel the Tokyo Olympics. The title of the petition is Cancel the Tokyo Olympics to Protect Our Lives. That petition has gained more than 200,000 supporters as of last week. The petition reads, the spread of the virus has not been stopped at all in Tokyo, the rest of the country, or even the world. Vaccination is so far limited to certain regions like the U.S. and Europe, so it is not a definitive way of stopping infections. Are we going to hold the Tokyo Olympics even if it puts lives and jobs in danger? Well, Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga has been determined to press ahead with the Tokyo Games. Already delayed a year due to the pandemic, billing the sporting extravaganza as an opportunity to declare victory over the virus. Voters disagree, however. A survey by the Asahi newspaper last month found that 28% wanted the event to go ahead in July, while 34% wanted it postponed again, and 35% wanted it canceled outright. So more than half of the respondents either want it postponed or canceled. The campaign for cancellation comes as Japan struggles to vaccinate its people and has immunized less than 2% of the total population. And meanwhile, the International Olympic Committee signed an agreement with Pfizer and BioNTech SE, which will donate vaccines to athletes and delegations traveling to the Games. The first deliveries are expected to begin by the end of the month. Well, that's all I've got for travel news. And when I come back, we'll have Javon's Travel Minute and Michelle Brown, director of the Greenwood Cultural Center on the 100th anniversary of the Black Wall Street and Tulsa Race Massacre. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you visit our website, TravelingCulturati.com, and connect with me on social media and join that travel club. And now, Javon's Travel Minute. The COVID-19 vaccine is now a prominent document that is either necessary or crucial to travel in the near and possibly far future. However, I have to say immunizations are not a new thing, especially as it relates to travel. I have a yellow fever vaccination, the only one that's required to date. I get a tetanus vaccination every 10 years, and depending on my destination, I review what immunizations are highly recommended. Now that many of us have received a COVID-19 vaccination and card, here is a list of what to do and what not to do with it and how to make it part of your travel plans. Keep the original at home and in a safe place. So instead of carrying the original with you, copy it, shrink it down to card size, like a credit card or business card, so it'll fit in your wallet. And remember, you may need to present it for local events as well. Don't laminate the original. 
we've already been alerted that the possibility of a booster shot is imminent. For this reason, don't laminate the original so you can have the original card updated with any boosters. You'll want to laminate the copy. Keep an electronic copy. Take a photo of your vaccination card and store it in your mobile device. As the process rules and restrictions for large events and travel unfold, a vaccine passport or digital verification is becoming a real thing. Now, what to do if you lose the original? According to health.com, if you happen to lose your card, check back with the clinic, the pharmacy, or hospital where you received the immunization, as they may have some form of record of it. If not, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommends contacting your state health department for their immunization information system. Your info should be added to that registry when you get vaccinated. The CDC also has a program called VSAFE that you can sign up for. This program is to track post-vaccine side effects and symptoms through a smartphone. You can register when you get your first vaccine and the program will keep track of your vaccine information so that you can access it later should you lose your card. Another option? I got my vaccine through the hospital associated with my healthcare team. So my vaccination information was automatically uploaded to my medical records. This is Javon, and that was your Travel Minute. This year marks the 100th anniversary of the events that destroyed the area known as Black Wall Street, and today is known as the Tulsa Race Massacre. Michelle Brown, Program Director of the Greenwood Cultural Center is on with me for the history of Greenwood, the massacre and destruction, and how the city is honoring the 100th anniversary today. Hello, Michelle, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Hi, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It truly is an honor because I think we need to keep this conversation going. I know it's the 100th anniversary, but it's uh, part of our history that we need to make sure that everybody knows about and we keep that conversation. So let's start with Greenwood, the area, and how it was during its heyday and prosperity. In 1921, when Black Wall Street was in its heyday, the Greenwood District was home to more than 300 Black-owned businesses. Anything you can imagine wanting or needing in your community at that time, you could find on Black Wall Street. There were restaurants, hotels, movie theaters. There were electricians and plumbers, doctors and attorneys. Dr. A.C. Jackson, the male brothers, called him one of the most able Negro surgeons in America, and he was located in the Greenwood District. Tons of Black professionals, their businesses lined the streets of Greenwood. It was simply an amazing time in the history of Tulsa, but also in the history of African-Americans for them to have created this prosperous Black-owned business district in the Greenwood District in Tulsa, Oklahoma. 1921, and you're saying 300 businesses in, I don't know if you know the radius of the area, but to think of 300 businesses all in one area at one time, that's huge. It is. It's very significant. And yet, there were other successful Black-owned business districts across the country. Black Wall Street was definitely one of the most prosperous, but African-Americans across the country were doing something similar, creating their own economic hub, and partly due in Tulsa due to segregation. Blacks were making money, and they had money to spend. However, they were not welcomed in white-owned stores and white-owned establishments. So the dollar, for example, would circulate more than 19 times in the Greenwood District before being spent outside of this community. And it's a testament, the fact that they were able to build this thriving Black-owned business district in 1921 in the face of racism and segregation, post-slavery. It's a testament to their strength, their courage, their determination, their resilience, it says so much about who we are as a people and where we come from. 19 times it circulated before the dollar left the community. I mean, in comparison to Black communities today, 
and Black-owned businesses and how many times the dollar stays in that community. That is a phenomenal statistic. I don't know the exact statistic today, but I think it probably leaves immediately and maybe only circulates once or twice, if that. Now, 1921, was that the most prominent year or the peak of Black Wall Street? What was the actual period in which Greenwood was prospering? 1921, yes, stands out. It was significant because it was the year of the Tulsa Race Massacre. And so we always reflect on the period prior to the massacre and discuss how many businesses were here, how many Black homeowners and business owners there were, how wealthy they were. But actually, the Black community would rebuild following the massacre. By 1925, they had rebuilt the Greenwood District and they had more businesses following the massacre than they had prior to. And so we have photographs that show the prosperity that shows Black-owned businesses lining the streets, that shows the return of the hotels and movie theaters and grocery stores and pharmacies and jewelry stores and on and on and on. So Greenwood actually thrived again to 25 and through the 40s and 50s. Okay, I don't think a lot of us know that. We think that there was such complete destruction. And certainly we're going to talk about that a little bit later, but How did the other neighboring areas see Greenwood? Because I'm thinking that some of the neighboring areas or neighborhoods were not Black communities. They were not Black communities. And the Greenwood District is adjacent to downtown Tulsa. And downtown Tulsa was thriving. There were rich white oil men coming into downtown Tulsa. The money would often trickle into the Greenwood District. But Let's be honest, many whites were angry and upset about the prosperity of the black community. Many whites felt that blacks had forgotten their place. They were envious and made comments such as, how dare those Negroes have a grand piano in their home and I don't have one in my home. A white gentleman spoke about being at the top of white-owned establishments in downtown Tulsa and being able to look over into the Greenwood District and this thriving Black community and thinking to himself how unfair it was that Blacks were employed, that they were thriving, that they were prosperous, that they were making money in contrast to poor whites. So there was a lot of racism, a lot of envy that existed in Tulsa at that time. The Ku Klux Klan had a strong presence in Tulsa and in the state of Oklahoma, and they made their presence known. So Tulsa referred to the Greenwood District as Little Africa, as a cesspool of iniquity. That statement is actually published in an article that appeared June 1st, 1921. And they were in no ways happy that Blacks were finding so much economic success, that Blacks were relocating to Tulsa. Blacks were moving here, seeing Greenwood as somewhat of a promised land, moving here from across the country. They would come, they would save some money, and then send for their loved ones to join them here. This was seen as a land of opportunity for African Americans. And there were many whites that were not happy about that. So those tensions were rising. Now, Black people from other parts of the country were seeing Greenwood as that promised land and actually moving there. Was it called Black Wall Street then, or did that name come about afterwards? That name, which it was originally called the Negro Wall Street of America, Booker T. Washington, when he visited the Greenwood District prior to the massacre, I believe, as he strolled through Greenwood, commented that Negroes here had created their own Negro Wall Street of America, and it later took on the moniker Black Wall Street of America. But it was known as a Negro Wall Street, as the most successful Black-owned business district in the country during that time. So as you've already mentioned, tensions were already there and tensions were already high. But what was that catalyst of the events that led to the massacre and destruction? So we know that some type of confrontation was inevitable. Had it not been the incident that occurred on May 31st, 1921, there would have been some type of confrontation between Blacks and whites. However, 
the catalyst was there was a young man named Dick Rowland had dropped out of high school at Booker T. Washington to shine the shoes of rich white oil men who would come into downtown Tulsa. And he was given special permission to go into the Drexel building in downtown Tulsa, which was a white-owned establishment, and use the restroom and get water. And that prevented him from having to come all the way back to the Greenwood District. It is said that he made quite a bit of money, so much so that he wore a diamond-encrusted belt buckle. Working in the elevator was a young white girl named Sarah Page, 16 years old, from Kansas City. And it was her job to stand in the elevator and operate the lever, which took the elevator from one floor to the next. Every day, she would stand in the elevator, and just about every day, Dick Rowland would go into the same elevator, going up to the top floor of the Drexel building to use the restroom and get water. So they were at least acquainted with one another. No one knows exactly what happened that particular day. What we do know was that Dick Rowland stepped into the elevator. There was the elevator doors closed, and... A moment later, there was a scream. And when the elevator doors opened, Dick Rowland ran and was later the following day arrested and taken to the jailhouse, which at this time, our jailhouse sat right above our courthouse. They held Dick Rowland there. A clerk working in the uh, Brinberg store nearby heard Sarah Page screaming, came running to see what had happened and claimed that she had been assaulted. As the story begins to circulate throughout the community throughout the day, it went from claims that she had been assaulted to she was sexually assaulted. By the end of the day, whites were claiming that she had been raped in broad daylight by this young African-American male, Dick Rowland. A newspaper article came out in the Tulsa Tribune that evening, the evening of May 31st. Looks like there's going to be a lynching in Tulsa tonight. Lynchings were all too common in Tulsa. Prior to this incident, a white man had been lynched in front of the jailhouse while police directed traffic. So the African-American community had every reason to believe that Dick Rowland's life was in danger, that he was going to be lynched. And yet there were a group of African-American men who were veterans. They had returned to their community with a renewed sense of pride, a sense of courage. And they had spoken out about lynchings that had taken place in surrounding communities. There were black leaders in our community at that time that spoke out about lynchings, about racism, and encouraged African-Americans to stand up. And so when thousands of whites gathered in front of the jailhouse, a group of about 40 black men gathered themselves and went to speak to the sheriff and offered to help protect Dick Rowland. The sheriff at that time told them to go on back to Greenwood. He had everything under control and Dick Rowland would be fine. And they did return to Greenwood. But as the number of white riders continued to grow, this time about 100 black men returned. And a white man approached the black man with a gun. He said, what are you going to do with that gun? He said, I'm going to use it if I have to. And they began to struggle over the gun. And during the struggle, the gun goes off. And at that point, it's no longer about Dick Rowland or Sarah Page. There's an all-out battle in front of the courthouse. Blacks retreat to the Greenwood District where they are able to position themselves in some strategic locations, atop Mount Zion Baptist Church, atop Stampipe Hill. And they are able to keep whites from invading their community for some time. But when 500 of those white riders are deputized and they're joined by the police force, eventually they break through the barriers that African-Americans have set up to protect their community. Blacks are outnumbered and outgunned and whites invade the Greenwood district and begin to loot, steal, and kill. Wow. What became of Greenwood at that point? What actually happened to Black Wall Street in that particular area? The Black community having fought so courageously to defend their community, at that point, the Black community is destroyed. 35 square blocks of property completely destroyed. More than 300 Black-owned businesses burned to the ground. A 1,000 homes burned to the ground. Eventually, the National Guard was called in. They were told that there was a Negro uprising and Negroes were killing innocent, unarmed whites. And so they sided with the predominantly white police force, with the white riders, and they destroyed the black community. 
they initiated martial law and they set up three internment sites in the city of Tulsa where they held every African-American man, woman, and child who had not escaped yet, who had not fled from the Greenwood District. 6,000 or so African-Americans held captive in these internment camps and they said it was for their protection, but what it did was to leave their homes and businesses defenseless. So everything that had not been destroyed, whites could go through and go through their homes and their businesses, take whatever valuables they wanted, and then set everything else on fire. There's really no way of knowing how many people lost their lives. The entire population of the black community at that time was 10 to 12,000 men, women, and children. 6,000 or so people were being held captive. And that left four to 6,000 people unaccounted for. And we know that there are people that fled, that never returned to the Greenwood District, but we also know that people were murdered. People were lying in the street. Bodies were being picked up out of the streets of Greenwood and dumped in the Arkansas River. The most widely recognized number of dead is somewhere around 300. However, the city of Tulsa is today conducting a mass graves investigation and looking at three sites here in Tulsa as the location for mass graves, victims of the massacre that took place here nearly 100 years ago. We will probably never know exactly how many people lost their lives, but we know that thousands of Black residents lost their homes and their businesses, and when they were released from those internment camps, came back to absolutely nothing but the clothes on their back. Oh, wow. And so... Over the years and decades that followed, because, you know, the story is just being really told in such a large way now. And of course, it started before just now, but immediately afterwards, it took some time for this story to really be told the way that it really happened versus a narrated or a crafted story that was told when it immediately happened. So the decades to follow, has Tulsa reconciled with the loss of life and economy? Tulsa has not done so. We have had conversations in our community about reconciliation and what that looks like. And it depends on who you speak to, whether it's black or white, what reconciliation has looked like for the city of Tulsa, what it should look like, and what we would like it to look like. And for many African-Americans, we believe that you cannot have reconciliation without reparation. That there are several survivors that are living that have been identified that are 103, 104 years old. There are descendants of the victims of the massacre who would have been entitled to the generational wealth that their families were building for them had their business and home not been completely destroyed. And so we feel that we have to have a conversation about reparations before we can truly reconcile as a city. And the city of Tulsa has moved forward in encouraging the education of the history and helping support the Greenwood Cultural Center and the building of a new museum, Greenwood Rising, that will also tell the story. But we have been here for nearly 30 years telling this history. We held a commemoration, a 75-year commemoration 25 years ago. And during that time, when we first began to get national attention, there were still many people here in Tulsa who didn't think we should acknowledge it, didn't want to talk about it. They refused to believe that this actually happened and that it happened the way that our survivors said that it happened. They refused to believe that airplanes dropped bombs on the community, that thousands of people were displaced and left homeless, that hundreds of people were murdered. And so it's been difficult up until this point to get people to acknowledge it, to have it included in our public school system. And now as we approach the 100-year commemoration, there has been more of a commitment to tell this story because even our elected officials have said, we acknowledge that the entire nation is going to be looking at Tulsa to see how we've moved forward and how we've progressed. And there has been some progression. However, there is still a lot of work to be done, and we will truly not not address the healing that needs to take place until we talk about reparations and until we address 
the historical trauma that many people, even if they are not descendants, being born and raised in North Tulsa in the shadow of this history that a massacre took place here on what we now consider sacred ground, those things have to be addressed and we have to come to terms as a whole. Absolutely. And so here we are today, May 31st and going into June 1st is the Mm -hmm. 100th anniversary. Traveling Culturati was really trying to plan a group trip there so that we could witness the commemoration and this major piece of history in American history, not just Black history, but it's American history. But unfortunately, with the uncertainty of COVID and some of the group restrictions, we're going to postpone it. But Greenwood is a place we will visit. Unfortunately, we won't do it during the 100th commemoration and anniversary, but we will do it. So Greenwood today, let's talk about it. And I know that there's some activities and events scheduled for the 100th anniversary, but certainly to visit. What are those historic sites that are there that we can visit for Black Wall Street and that history? So the Greenwood Cultural Center will be here. We are undergoing a renovation. Actually, they are renovating the Black Wall Street Memorial that sits in front of our facility that lists all of those Black-owned businesses that we mentioned. That will be completed by the end of the month. And we house the Mabel Beaver Heritage House, which is a home that belongs to two race massacre survivors, Sam and Lucy Mackey. It was completed in 1927, and it gives you an idea of how some African-Americans were able to live during that time period, which contrasts what we were taught, which was that during this time, most African-Americans were poor, uneducated, six kids in a one-bedroom shack, and that simply was not the reality for many Black families in the Greenwood District. So you can tour the home and see how some African-Americans actually live. There's Reconciliation Park which provides an outdoor learning experience. Vernon AME Church across the street from the Cultural Center gives tours. Their edifice was here. One of the remaining structures that was here prior to the massacre, Mount Zion Baptist Church, which sits on the west side of the Cultural Center, part of their structure was also here, remains from 1921. And then, of course, there is a new museum, being built, Greenwood Rising, which will include some interactive displays and exhibits that people will be able to tour beginning later this year. All opportunities to learn more about this history. Is there a website for someone to plan their visit? Yes. So www.tulsa2021.org is a site that lists many of the upcoming activities and events, and it is the links to the website for Greenwood Rising. And then, of course, the Greenwood Cultural Center's website is www.greenwoodculturalcenter.org. And we are actually debuting that revised website today. And we will highlight many of the activities ongoing throughout the year, activities and events that are taking place at the Greenwood Cultural Center, as well as the community events. And people are always welcome to call the Greenwood Cultural Center when they are planning their event and any assistance that we can provide in helping them locate Black-owned businesses and identify events that are taking place during their visit, we're more than happy to do so. Fantastic. And will some of the 100th anniversary and commemoration events be virtual so that those of us that didn't make it during this particular time can witness the commemoration? Yes, absolutely. So several of our events will be virtual, and those are listed on our website, as well as Tulsa2021.org and the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission, who is hosting a number of events in the community. Many of their events will also be virtual, and there are many free virtual events that people can register for and attend and be able to participate in the commemoration with us. Well, Michelle, thank you so much. You are a wealth of information and gave us such a thorough depiction of what Greenwood was before, what happened, the catalyst, and then what we're working with today. And we are still coming, (laughs) but certainly when we can plan the type of group program that we really want to so that we can take in the full and total 
experience and, of course, paying a visit to Greenwood Cultural Center. So thank you again today for joining me. Thank you so much for having us, and we look forward to your visit. When I come back, we'll have the culture report. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Go on over to the website. It's TravelingCulturati.com. And while you're there, follow us on social media and join that travel club. Culture is forever changing and reflecting what's happening in the society and with its people. It can be born of the arts, music, food, and sometimes politics and strife. This is the Culture Report on planning a cultural trip. Understand you can find cultural experiences anywhere and everywhere. You can also plan your entire trip around it or experience it in small doses. It's really about taking a deeper dive or a deeper look into the why and how. Getting a better understanding and giving of yourself. Now there are three areas in which you can do cultural tours. Those are categorized in people, experiences, and places. So you'll first want to identify what you want out of that cultural trip. This will determine your program or at least point you in the right direction. So let's start with people. Now there are many people-to-people experiences that you can have at any destination. Some tourism boards have people-to-people programs that are established in different areas of interest. You can do a student exchange program. You can immerse yourself in the local culture based on the country, for example, cultivating agriculture, helping to build community projects, teaching, community service, and you can also connect with cultural ambassadors. Now let's go back to some of these people-to-people programs established in different areas of interest by tourism boards. So let's say, for example, you can still go to Cuba as a people-to-people exchange. That's when you are really connecting with the community. Maybe you want to learn more about the music of Cuba, or you want to learn more about the food or the agriculture. On one of our trips, we went to an organic farm. We toured the farm. They gave us some lessons and information on how the farm operates, what is grown on the farm. And then we also had that farm to table dining experience. And I have to tell you, that was like the sweetest avocado I have ever tasted. No sugar added, nothing added. I had no idea that avocados were sweet or could be sweet. But again, these are some of the people to people exchanges and experiences that you can have either in a small way, that was just a day trip that we did, but we did other cultural experiences while we were in Cuba. In Jamaica, for example, they also have people-to-people where you can spend time one-on-one with a family and they will show you their island, kind of a day in the life of, and introduce you to their different communities, their work life, their work environment. And of course, a lot of that comes back to food and, you know, those culinary experiences. You can get your hands dirty (laughs) with some people-to-people exchanges, with rolling up your sleeves and being part of some community projects. There have been some, for example, if a neighborhood or a community needs a well, you can help in building that or maybe be part of Habitat for Humanity. That's another people-to-people exchange. And that's part of volunteerism as well, which is one of the things I'll get to in a little bit later as far as an experience. And then with those cultural ambassadors, we have used and worked with cultural ambassadors in Dubai, for example. And again, this is just a session that we did. So you don't have to think of cultural experiences as being a total immersion. So if you want to just spend a day, an afternoon, an hour, it really just gives you that opportunity to connect with people and learn a bit more. In the situation in the experience we had in Dubai, the cultural ambassador was really there. We had like a roundtable kind of discussion to explain to us not only the culture of 
the United Arab Emirates, but also that difference in what is cultural versus what is religion-based. Very interesting. So again, you can find it anywhere. If you are a teacher or if you have a skill that you would like to teach in a community, whether it is something for nurses, for example, that's something that you can do. It could be young girls if you want to empower them. There's so many things that you can do. Now let's talk about experiences. Volunteerism is a whole sector in itself. And again, you can do it in a big way where you just jump in the deep end and spend the entire time there, or you can do it in a very segmented way. Educational. I talked about teaching, but there are specific educational tours, whether you want to educate yourself or pass on the education that you have. There are educational cruises. There are school trips that you can do, seminar vacations. You can study abroad or you can do self-enhancement vacations and don't forget about history and historical sites. Now, spiritual tourism is defined as an act of traveling domestically or internationally to visit spiritual places like mosques, churches, temples, natural environments like forests, oceans, lake. There's also spiritual gardens. Forest bathing is something that the Japanese coined, and that is really just immersing yourself into the forest and really becoming one with nature. You, of course, have wildlife parks for birds and animals, botanical gardens, caves, rocks. So just consider that spiritual isn't always religion. A sabbatical. I think a lot of us may need a sabbatical after the pandemic. Just to really clear your mind, your heart, your spirit, all of those things. Yoga. Or you can visit historic churches. Connecting with a spiritual ambassador to get a better understanding. As I talked about in Dubai, where we had a cultural ambassador, and he explained that difference between what is a nation's culture versus the religion. Visual and performing arts. So this is going to museums, galleries. Of course, you can always take in street art. That's just discovering on foot what you find around you. Murals. I did a whole show on murals and interviewed a mural artist who was extremely interesting here in Chicago. You can have a trip to witness the performing arts, theater trips. New York is opening up again, Broadway. The lights will be back on in September, so kind of think about that. You have the ballet. And then, of course, you have music. There are festivals. Or just something like New Orleans and hanging out at the clubs and learning about different music genres. We talked about jazz festivals, for example. I had on two really great people who knew a lot about jazz and music festivals just a few weeks ago. Food and wine, of course. You can take tasting tours, cooking classes. Some of the things we've done, for example, are home-hosted meals. And yes, that's considered culinary. And having someone cook a home-cooked meal for you and breaking bread, sitting around someone's dining room table, learning about the family, they're learning about you, is a great experience. And kind of think in culinary tourism, how it's made. So there are two things that come to mind for me, but there certainly are many that fall into that category. So for example, coffee. Coffee's a big thing. Every day, it's a part of our lives. So how is it made? So you can do a coffee tour and going to where they grow and cultivate the beans, how it goes from the bean to the pot or to your cup. Chocolate is another one. How is chocolate made? I mean, we've done chocolate class in Switzerland, which was a lot of fun. Cheese is another one. We've visited cheese farms, understanding the different cheeses and the production and what it takes to make it. And then the last category is places. So it includes tourism, of course, in urban areas, particularly historic and large cities. There are cultural facilities like theaters, cultural heritage sites. There's so many things and places. I mean, there's culture in just about everything you do, but if you really want to narrow it down to that, in places we're talking about in nature, your national parks. The United States has some wonderful national parks. And I have to give a shout out to Jeff Ulfs, who listens every week and is part of the National Park Services and is always sending me great information about the national parks. You have your forests, your mountains, you can do bird watching, whale watching, flora and fauna, all of these things. It's part of an experience, but also part of places. Visiting indigenous villages or traditional villages. Now, 
do so with respect in mind if you're visiting an indigenous and or a traditional village clear your mind and go with the utmost respect and make sure you understand and do your homework before you go so that you don't offend anyone or so that you're not super surprised by some things and keep your judgment to yourself because again it's a cultural experience neighborhoods i always find that you can find some wonderful things in just neighborhoods just hanging out and seeing how the neighborhood functions just the vibe of the neighborhood but there are also some historic neighborhoods where you can find some wonderful sites like for example in washington dc the u street corridor they have the african-american civil war memorial there's so many wonderful historic sites that you can find in these neighborhoods that you may not otherwise know about. And of course, historic sites. There are major historic sites around the globe. Egypt comes to mind. You have like Abu Simbel, Karnak Temple, these heritage sites, the Valley of the Kings and Queens, just to name a few. But they're all over the world, of course. And then your cities. Take an architectural tour. That's a wonderful thing to do. Chicago has a fabulous one that is done along the Chicago River. So let's quickly talk about some of the do's and don'ts. So the do's list. Plan, plan, plan. Know the destination and culture. So like I said before, don't offend yourself or anyone through the process. Certainly make advance arrangements for people to people. You want to find companies who focus on people to people programs. If you're not using an organization to plan your trips, you can do it yourself and connect with those communities or as part of an organization for those day trips that you're doing. It's very important that you still find out that protocol so that you're doing the right thing. If you're staying in or visiting someone's home, learn the family dynamic and connect with them in advance so that you understand that family dynamic. Bring a hostess gift and understand family time versus your own personal time. And if you're going to a village, learn those cultural do's and don'ts. And our don't list, it's very short, but impactful. Don't overpack. Going to some of these areas in far off places may not be so easy to navigate without luggage. So they're going to be extra hard to navigate if you have too much luggage. Do not go unprepared. Again, this is the don'ts list. Don't forget that you are a visitor and a guest. So act accordingly. Don't take photos without permission. And don't forget to share of yourself because this should be a cultural exchange. So there you have it. Planning a cultural trip. So enjoy. Well, that's it for the show today. Wherever you go, go with all your heart. Confucius. Ladies and gentlemen. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Ladies and gentlemen.